According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John 8 this morning. I was ready to move on to John chapter 9, but it was just brought to my attention that uh, we've got some final points of study out of episode number 4 that we didn't get to last week as we ran out of time. All right. John chapter 8, we're in the final section here, taking us down through verse 59, the response. And by this time, it is clear and open hostility to everything he says. You know, if he says something about his father versus their father, they jump on him. Well, God is our father, or Abraham's our father, and so forth. And it's just open hostility here. And I think it's it's amazing. The Lord has much more patience than I would have had. I'd have blasted him to smithereens, you know, days before this probably. But that's why uh, he's sinless and perfect, and, and I'm not in any event. Let's take a moment for prayer, making sure we're filled with the Spirit and uh, prepared for this study, shall we pray? Dear Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, we commit to you our time of study. We thank you for your, your mercies that are renewed day by day and your great faithfulness that you manifest towards us. We thank you for the answers to prayer we've been celebrating this morning. Father, we uh, uh, trust and pray that we continue to be in your hands for your guidance and for your direction. And uh, Father, if there's anyone that's viewing our answer as uh, as a discouragement, Father, I pray that you might modify our thinking to understand that your provision is always perfect and you know, disappointments on our part uh, require a change of thinking. Because uh, not one good thing do you withhold from those who trust in you. And, uh, and your provision is that which comes down from above uh, and that which is perfect. And we thank you for it. We thank you now for this time of study and uh, for the reminder, uh, Father, that uh, we have diligent students that keep track of where we are even when uh, the teacher loses track. Uh, thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're just going to run off the screen since I don't have my paper notes up here from last week. Uh, point six and the final point. Let me just run through these. Point two, by turning his departure warning soteriological. And we have the same opportunity as well. People want to debate things in time. Our perspective is one of eternity. You know, it's really kind of remarkable. People want to debate creation versus evolution. Well, that's fine. Uh, but we'll find out when we get there, won't we? At least if you have a biblical perspective. The evolutionists won't find out anything because they're just going to die and, and evolve into whatever they think they're going to evolve into. <laughs> All right. Under point three, we examined kind of the disparity between the group he was speaking to and the group that kept butting in and intruding and arguing back. He was speaking to those who believed in him about abiding in the word of God and uh, the hostile crowd uh, continues in the confrontation. The freedom, which is the daily freedom from personal sin and enslavement. We can't stress that enough. And we could teach this every week for a year and uh, not exhaust the, uh, the subject under point four. Reminding ourselves that when you choose to commit a personal sin, you made that choice. And you were not subject to a sovereignty or a uh, power 
beyond your ability. The, the sin nature cannot overpower you because when you are walking in the light, that is our provision. If you walk uh, by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you try to tell me that the sin nature is more powerful than the Holy Spirit who is in you, uh, then I will tell you you're, you're dead wrong. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent and the only occasion in which um, the Holy Spirit's power is not brought to bear against the sin nature's power is when we select the alternative for our empowerment. When we choose to uh, not put off the, uh, the flesh. And these are all things that we looked at. I think it's very vivid there in Romans chapter 6. When you bend the knee, when you bow the head, when you submit to the sin nature as a volitional slave. Other issues there on slave sh uh, slavery and freedom that we can be thankful for. Point five, the crowds re reacted with an angry defense of their legitimate birth. And this was the difference between the paternity. Theological paternity generates love for his word. And this is something else as well. I think um, this is true as a general statement. I also think, though, that prolonged carnality and prolonged starvation uh, will have its effect uh, observed in the soul of the believer to where he no longer has a love for the word or maybe he never developed an appetite for it to begin with uh, if, sadly, uh, so many folks get saved but never get grounded right away. And because they don't get grounded right away, they, uh, they're they under the impression that salvation is all there is, that you're saved, you're going to go to heaven when you die, and that's about all there is to it. And so because they never get, they never grow beyond that, they never develop the taste and the appetite that the theological paternity motivates. Same thing, the diabolical paternity. If you are of your father the devil, there's a motivation there. We want to please our father. All right, we get to point six then. Jesus concludes with a summary message of honor and glory in the present enjoyment of eternal life. This is verses 49 through 59. So uh, they're accusing him of being a demoniac and a Samaritan. And he says, no. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So this is an aspect of honor and glory. We see the honor versus dishonor in verse 49. We see the glory in verse 50. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. If you spend your time in pursuit of personal glory... You are working in a manner counter to the Father's plan. The Father's plan calls for your humility, your obedience. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He will exalt you at the proper time. Then he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so now they're convinced he's out of his mind. This the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also you know, never mind the fact that we're the ones that killed most of them. Um, Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. This is, of course, consistent with truth. He'll expand upon this in chapter 11 when he teaches Mary and Martha about the resurrection and the life. That uh, if you uh, live, you will never die. And even if you die, you will live again. And the relationship between spiritual and physical life and death. We'll, we'll cover that. So now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. And this is absolutely inconceivable that this person standing in front of them will be greater 
than Abraham. Abraham is so revered at this point that he's practically a god himself, given the the devotion they have to Abraham as their racial father, to Moses as their lawgiver, to David as their king. They lift up these examples, and rather than following those examples, they idolize those examples, as if an Abrahamic offspring is, by virtue of Abraham's godliness, an Abrahamic offspring has a first-class you know, first e-ticket straight to, straight to heaven. So you're not greater than our father Abraham. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham. The, the syntax of this, as it's constructed, demands the answer be no. There's no way to answer any other way. It has to be no. You can't possibly answer anything else. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Whom do you make yourself out to be? We have similar idioms and expressions today. We would say, you know, who do you think you are? Right? So Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And I see, that was their department. That's what they specialized in. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So they had a claim, he had a claim. But he backed it up with how he lived, the things he did, his obedience to the Father. They had a claim. But the way they live didn't validate their claim. The way they live validated who their true father really was. This is very consistent, of course, with by the fruit you shall know them. They were serving their father, the devil, and they wanted to do the things, the deeds of their father. So he goes on to say, um, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Of course, he saw it prophetically, didn't see it literally. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, again, their blindness is preventing them from seeing the very reality that's right before them. And this is no different then uh, when you give the gospel to an unbeliever who's not under the Holy Spirit's conviction, who's not under the Father's drawing, and as far as you're concerned, you're giving the clearest gospel imaginable. It's very, it makes a lot of sense to you. It, uh, it seems normal. It seems uh, natural. It seems like you know, you'd have to be an idiot to reject this. And yet they look at you and they're walking in darkness and they reject it. And that's the aspect of it. See, unless the Father's drawing, unless the Holy Spirit's convicting, no one's coming to Christ. Does that discourage us? Hope it doesn't. Just keep going. Keep testifying. Stay faithful. You're planting seeds. Someone else may come along in water. And uh, it's, not, it's not our work anyway. It's his work. Okay, now we've got some subpoints under this. A, B, C, D, E, F. If I knock it out in two minutes, then we'll get to the man born blind. I suspect you probably won't, though. I'm eager to do the man born blind, but... First things first. Jesus Christ continuously honored the Father. The verb is timao. T-I-M-A-O. Timao. And timao is a thinking term, but it is ultimately it's an economic context for how you appraise something, how you estimate something of, uh, of worth. Uh, time is the noun that means honor. Timios is an adjective that means precious. 
And, of course, Timothy comes from this. The proper name Timothy, Timetheos, precious in the sight of God or honoring to God. So the verb is Timao, T-I-M-A-O, number 5091 in the Strongest Concordance. Now, as always, the price is in the eye of the buyer, right? Or I guess in the seller. And uh, there are probably things that I would estimate higher than you would estimate. And I'm sure there's other things that you would estimate higher than what I would estimate. Uh, There are books that I would look at. In fact, uh, there's a a set of three books that are uh, very rare, hard to come by. uh, Textual um, examinations of manuscripts for the book of Revelation by an author named Hoskins. And it's been a while since I looked. I think it's multiple hundreds of dollars, like $600 or something, if you can find a used. Of course, they're all used. They haven't been in print for decades. And uh, and I would evaluate that and estimate that and think, hmm, someday maybe. I imagine everybody else in this room would say, what, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You know what I could do with 600 bucks? I'm not buying some dumb books for 600 bucks. All right. And so it all depends. There's things that you'll spend money on that I just laugh at and say, what a waste of time. Right. But you estimated it. You evaluated it. And based on who you are, where you are and what you've got going on, it's a fair price. And you go, yeah, that's 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 a wonderful price. So uh, we find the interesting things here. Now, God honors. This is why it's uh, it's a matter for perspective, because God honors things that the world finds foolish. And God finds utterly foolish the things, many of the things that the world honors beyond anything else. So it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of, of our viewpoint. Uh, so anyway, this, this word study is important. Uh, the verb is 5091. The noun TMA is number 5092 for honor. We are to give honor to whom honor is due. We are commanded to do that, actually. And then timios is the term precious. And the reason why something is precious is because you honor it as having high value or high worth. And so if it's precious, then you tend to uh, look after it or take care of it. Or you're not negligent in the way that you handle it or where you just uh, thoughtlessly leave it laying around somewhere. If it's if if you're laying it around somewhere and not paying much attention to where you're, you're that's kind of neglectful. And it shows that's not very precious to you. Until you lose it, and then you realize, oh, I should have been more careful. <laughs> Causes you to, you know, when you when you have either lost or on the verge of losing something, sometimes then it gets very clear. Wait a minute, I have not been honoring what I should have been honoring to the degree that I should have been. All right. The important aspect on this, though, is that it is a present active uh, tense to the verb, so it is a continuous action. Uh, he continuously honor the honors the father which is what he says here, I presently, now, even now, continuously am honoring my father. And the corollary there, you dishonor me, is likewise a continuous action verb. So secondly, the hostile sons of the devil dishonor the son. The hostile sons of the devil dishonored the son. This is a clear violation of Psalm 2. And that's right, last week I said, hey, take a look at Psalm 2. The verb here now is atimazo. You put an alpha. And uh, very little difference between timazo and timao. You'll notice the timao 
with an alpha in front of it. In fact, as far as Strong's was concerned, he gave it the same number. He gave it number 818. And in our New Testament, some of the uses are automazos and some of the uses are automaos, but they're effectively the same verb. You also have the noun automia, the adjective automas, and then uh, another verb form, automao, with an oo ending. Short o, omicron, long o, omega. And so they're all pretty close together in the Strong's Index, 818, 819, 820, and 821. Well, this is what they're doing. They are dishonoring God the Son and through him then God the Father. The idea of honoring versus dishonoring, it's not, it, it is an absolute issue. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an area where there can be fuzzy ground in between. It's like being in fellowship or out of fellowship, being saved or lost. Your thoughts, your words, and your deeds are either honoring to God or, what are they? Dishonoring to God. There's no middle ground where, well, it's kind of a little bit honoring. You see, no, let's not weasel out of it. All right, Psalm 2. They are commanded to honor the Son. Even kiss the Son in some translations. Do homage to the Son in the New American Standard translation. I want you to recognize that this is in a millennial context. However... Remember, in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven is at hand until such time as the rejection becomes apparent and then the uh, road to the cross becomes very clear and the pending departure uh, makes it obvious that the kingdom is going to be delayed. We've already crossed that line in our Life of Christ series. We've already crossed the line after the feeding of the 5,000 where the clear national rejection was such that he stopped preaching the imminency of the kingdom. And he started to, to teach more privately to his disciples and he also started to prohibit more and more frequently the testimony for him to be the Christ and he started to prepare his disciples for the eventuality of the cross. So this psalm is a millennial psalm. It's a kingdom psalm. And we see it starts off with the nations in an uproar, the kings taking their stand, the rulers taking counsel together, and even all of humanity pooling their finite wisdom, uh, all of it put together is nothing compared to the wisdom and plan of God. They're not going to thwart God's plan one bit. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And uh, we were discussing this the other day at the apostasy that's all around us and the sad state of affairs when, uh, you know, there's a, only a percentage of uh, evangelicals that believe in the existence of heaven does that bother you does that make you weep some of it just makes me laugh because uh, i'm kind of tired of weeping over the thing you just you wonder what in the world how much darker can it get before the trumpet sounds and and the lord calls us home and just delivers the rest of this apostasy over to the darkness that's about to be uh, afflicted upon this planet so he who sits in the heavens laughs. Let's keep a mental, uh, heavenly perspective and the mental attitude in agreement with the fathers. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, remember, these nations are conspiring and they're conspiring throughout the thousand years of Christ leading up to the Gog-Magog rebellion at the very end. 
And it's not Jesus Christ that stamps that rebellion in, in Revelation chapter 20. The fire comes down from heaven. It is the Father, the laughing Father's direct judgment by fire upon the Gog Magog rebels in Revelation chapter 20. We notice that it is the Father's work here. It's consistent with Revelation 20. We also notice that the king is installed, completed action. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So this uh, requires a millennial fulfillment because as of now, uh, 2008 A.D., Jesus Christ is not installed on Zion, reigning over the throne of David on planet Earth. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very end of the earth is your possession. Important difference there in the millennium. Jesus rules on the throne of David over the nation of Israel. That nation has very clear boundaries. The great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the western sea and so forth. The boundaries of the Abrahamic land, land grant are clear. However, there is an even greater inheritance that is waiting him. So in the millennium, he is ruling as the son of David on the throne of David. The Gentile kings rule, rule on their thrones as tribute nations subject to the nation of Israel. But here we observe in verse 8 that the ends of the earth are his for the asking. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. All the nations, all of humanity, not just the nation of Israel. The ends of the earth is your possession. No longer observing the, no longer limited by the national boundaries of the Abrahamic land grant to the nation of Israel. That, by the way, is not millennial in its fulfillment. That is on the, in the new heavens and on the new earth in the fullness of time after the uh, uh, Gog-Magog rebellion, the destruction of the heavens and the earth, and the great white throne judgment. So in the millennium, he rules as the son of David on the throne of David over the nation of Israel with Gentile nations tribute. In the fullness of time, he rules over all mankind as not only the son of David, but the son of man ruling on the throne with uh, all of humanity in immediate uh, governance. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Jehovah, Yahweh, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. We have here the parallel of the Father and the Son, referenced here as Jehovah and the Son, that he not become angry. This cannot be a created being. This cannot be a human being. This cannot be an angel or any other mortal or any other finite being because God and God alone is worthy of worship. And that's what we see here in the terms of worship in verse 11 and homage in verse 12. They are worshiping terms. Do homage to the Son that only God is entitled to, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So the dishonoring of the Son is a failure to worship the Father and a failure to recognize the Father's provision. Even though the Father sent Him into the world, announced it at His birth, announced it at His baptism, announced it on the Transfiguration Mount, He's announced it three times already, and he will announce it again at the cross. All right, back to John chapter 8. 
So the son is busy honoring the father. The sons of the devil are busy dishonoring the son. Violation of Psalm 2. See, they should not have had the hang-up they had over the Son of God, Son of Man, messages that Jesus Christ delivered time and time and time again. Point C. Honoring the Father requires a walk of humility. This is how Jesus accomplished it. This is how you and I can accomplish it. You want to honor the Father? Here's your steps. You want to dishonor the Father? (laughs) Don't do these steps. It requires a walk of humility. As Jesus says in John 8:50, I do not seek my glory. Anytime you pursue your own glory, you're dishonoring the Father. Because the Father wants you to humble yourself. The Father wants you to walk in His plan for your life. And His plan for your life is centered in Christ. It's not centered in you. So I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks... And judges. We need to walk the walk of humility, trusting that the Father who sees will judge. Even if we think it's it's not very impressive, it's just a life of obscurity, it's just a, um, you know, we might get discouraged and think, oh, we're not having any impact, we're not doing anything, what are we, are we wasting our lives? Not for a bit. If we're where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, it will resound for all eternity. The Father handles the results. Matthew 23:12 And I'll expand on this more than I might otherwise because it's going to tie in really well tonight as we look at our benediction in 1 Corinthians 16. We're headed for verse 12, but we back up to the beginning of the chapter. Jesus spoke to the crowds, to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They've done it themselves. That's where they are. And as far as the people are concerned, they're now. Moses was the lawgiver, but the Pharisees are the law uh, interpreters. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. So, as they're teaching the law of Moses... Obey, not because the Pharisees deserve it, but because it is the law of Moses and it is uh, incumbent upon Israel for their observance. However, their deeds, watch out, because they're a bunch of flaming hypocrites. All right. Can I say that? Okay, I guess I did. It's considered profane, I think, in England, isn't it? Flaming? I'm not in England anyway, so. All right. I can say they're a bunch of flaming hypocrites, and that's what they are. All right. If I was in England, that might be swearing, and I probably shouldn't use such language. All right. So don't do their deeds, but do what they tell you because they're teaching the law of Moses. And and Moses, uh, you're still under the dispensation of Israel, the age of law, and also the age of the incarnation now. In any event, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. See, that's a problem. When your spiritual leaders are giving you a bunch of rules to follow, and they seem to have a different set, right? A different standard, a different, you know, it's just pride and arrogance. That's all it is. You know, they, they get 
full of themselves, fat-headed. They think somehow uh, it doesn't apply to them or somehow they, uh, they're special or somehow they're entitled to a different standard. You know, it boggles the mind. You read about a, a pastor who's got a, a, a mistress somewhere. You know, he's got her all set up in some kind of house or condo or whatever and, and for years. And what's the guy been doing all that time? Get up on Sunday and preach, and I wonder if he hit any of the adultery passages while he was... And yet, he's got this... Why do they have that disconnect? I think it's an insanity. I think it's a willful, schizophrenic, separate what I'm saying from what I'm doing. And, of course, we see from this text who motivates that. Notice an issue here that we'll get back into tonight. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. We've got to focus on these greetings. That's what we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians 16 are the greetings, including the benediction greetings from Ephesus to Corinth that, that closed the, the book of 1 Corinthians and also that include the greetings that are associated with the holy kiss. We've got kissing lessons coming up in the holy kiss. And every one of them that we have in Scripture is an instrumental use of kissing in terms of the obedience to the imperative that we are commanded to greet one another. We're not commanded to kiss one another. We're commanded to greet one another and uh, with the holy kiss. And we'll have to spend some time on that. But the idea of greetings, why do you like being greeted? Or do you like being greeted? And if you do, why? And what is the impact of this? We'll have some, you know, in our... A lot, of, a lot of this is lost to us. I've got to be honest. A lot of this is totally lost to us because we no longer have the culture, the practices. the, the uh, it's, it's totally gone. So we'll try to take ourselves back 2,000 years and put ourselves back in this culture and show how significant a greeting is. How significant uh, the, the interplay between people is. Because it makes a difference who greets whom first and in what order. And that's what they're craving. See, when two people encounter each other, it is to be the inferior that greets the superior. Has to be. It's highly insulting otherwise. Okay, We don't follow that. As, at least I don't. <laughs> Maybe you guys do. I, I don't know that 21st century Americans follow that or have a intrinsic concept that everybody you encounter is either above you or below you in the social estimation of things. See. Um, but in generations past, I mean, it would be normal. It would be expected. Uh, for instance, children would be expected to be respectful to parents and grandparents, and they would be expected to offer the greeting first. And they would not speak uh, otherwise. They would not feel free to converse until they have been spoken to and, and, and allowed to contribute to the conversation and so forth. Anyway, well, some of that's lost to us, but we'll, we'll develop it in our First Corinthians series. So anyway, this shows the pride of the Pharisees here uh, also being called rabbi. Oh, goodness. Uh, insistence on a title and earning the title, deserving the title, and then basking in the title. Now, that our modern equivalent, of course, is the Ph.D., the, the, the pinnacle of being known as doctor so-and-so. And we talked about that this morning. There's a lot of uh, 
confusion being injected into Christian churches and into the presentation of the gospel by an awful lot of uh, doctors that are muddling things. And do not call anyone on earth your father. So, so much for the Roman Catholic practice. And uh, do not be called leaders and so forth. And then verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Do you want to excel in the Christian way of life? Develop a servant heart. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. You pursue self-glorification simply anticipates consequences. And the consequences will be enforced humility. And the more you strive to promote yourself, the more the Father is going to administer humbling, humbling circumstances, discipline, situations that just leave you uh, recognizing that you're not as special as you think you are. So whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Keep in mind, though, that's in eternity. You may have no temporal life exaltation here on planet Earth. Don't go for a year and say, well, I've been pretty humble. I was really humble last year. Where's my exaltation this year? <laughs> all right. Yeah, you've been really humble, all right. Sounds like you're pretty proud of how humble you were last year. Let's work on that more this year. <laughs> So, honoring the Father requires a walk of humility. John 8:50, Matthew 23:12, Luke 1:52. Luke 1:52, Mary understood this. I think Mary was very adjusted in humility orientation. I don't believe the Father uh, that was intentional. The Father prepared her. Her parents were believers. She was grounded in doctrine from the youngest of ages. As a young woman of marriageable age, she was um, had a maturity in doctrinal matters. She was a very humble girl. God was not going to select some fruitcake, arrogant, prideful teenage girl to be the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. All right. Yes, he picked her by grace. Yes, she's a favored one, but she was also a favored one in grace with some doctrinal maturity. And that came because she was so humble. So Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's a powerful verse right there. Most Roman Catholics deny it's even in there because Mary doesn't need a Savior. Mary is sinless. Mary is perfect. Wrong. Mary is a sinner. She needs a Savior. That verse says so. She admitted it. And uh, he's had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. From be behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Not because she deserves it, but because God, her Savior, had regard for her humility and blessed her with this assignment. She's not to be praised. The mighty one is to be praised. He has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. See, she was oriented to humility. If you're proud in the thoughts of your heart, look out. His arm will scatter you. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. See, she knows about thrones. She knows about politics. She's the daughter of David. Her line, just like Joseph's line, is direct descent from David in the royal line of the house of Judah, the nation of Israel. House of David, tribe of Judah, nation of Israel. Joseph's descendant through Solomon and Mary's descendant through Nathan. So uh, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, exalted those who were humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. In other words, God's standard is not man's standard. James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6. And these ought to be very well known to us. This is part of our intimacy and fellowship, part of functioning in the greater grace. We're thankful to be saved by grace, but when are we going to start walking in the greater grace? Verse 6 of James 4 says, He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's the grace that saves you, but there's the greater grace that is bestowed upon the humble servant obedient to his plan in the Christian walk. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is in the nearness of intimacy and fellowship. It has nothing to do with omnipresence or proximity. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Every time you go carnal, you just put distance between you and the omnipresent God. A distance in terms of fellowship. Be miserable and mourn and weep. <laughs> Anybody got that on the refrigerator? It's an application. And they're imperatives. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Yeah, if you're not mourning and weeping over the things God's mourning and weeping over, why not? So humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. Again, is that going to come in time, or will that come in eternity? First Peter 5, 6, exhortation to everybody, really. You've got elders and shepherds in verses 1 through 5. Or 1 through 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This ought to be something you put on every single day. Like anything else you put on every single day. You put on clothes every day, you put on shoes every day, you put on whatever you put on every day. You put on makeup every day, whatever you do. I put my watch on every day. I'd be naked without this thing on my left arm telling me what time it is. Well, in addition to other things you put on every day, make sure that you're dressed in humility. This is the clothing that goes underneath the armor. <laughs> if you ever think about it. Can you imagine? I used to tour in Germany all these castles, and I used to look at armor and swords and stuff. And could you imagine being buck naked and putting on a breastplate and the greaves and the sleeves and that, ooh, that would just... Rub and cut and, ooh. No, you got to have clothes on underneath your armor. What kind of idiot would be naked underneath a suit of armor? Well, it's kind of a picture, isn't it? If, if you're trying to go to Ephesians 6 and put on your armor so you can engage in battle in the angelic conflict, that you're not dressed first, having clothed yourself with humility, that's rather necessary. In fact, this passage says it's necessary before you can encounter your adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So make sure that set of humility clothing is on and, and firmly in place before you try to armor up and go to battle. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, being of sober spirit, on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
So if you're going to resist the devil and apply verse 8, if you're going to claim the promises and claim, and claim verse 7, you better be obedient to verses 5 and 6 and be dressed in humility. Because if you're still humble and you try to say, oh, well, I'm going to cast my burdens on the Lord, without the humility, um, it's just not going to happen. All right. Point D. Back to John 8. Keeping the Word of God. That is the Word of the Son and keeping the Word of the Father. Because we have both the Father and the Son in view here. He's honoring the Father. They're dishonoring Him. Keeping the Word of the Son and keeping the Word of the Father. What is that? Consists of a present abiding in doctrine with an eternal focus. We look at verse 51. We look at verses 54 through 56. What does it mean? It consists of a present abiding in doctrine with an eternal focus. We're abiding in the Word of God. Living the Word of God. It's saturating our thinking. It's where we are occupied. Day by day. Moment by moment. It fills our thoughts. And as it fills our thoughts, our focus remains eternity. Colossians 3.1 Keep setting your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated. You know, think about the things that are always running through your mind. Should be Scripture. Uh, it may be other things, and hopefully as the growth process works, uh, less and less of those other things will be, uh, will be, uh, they'll be pushed to the side. See? A present abiding in doctrine with an eternal focus. If anyone keeps my word, keeps my word. Now, there is a keeping that's in terms of obeying, in terms of believing the gospel and becoming a believer. But there is also the keeping that references the present abiding, which we see in 54 through 56. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. Present active activity. I am knowing him. Today I am knowing him. I am thoroughly, consistently, continuously knowing him. I will not... Uh, if I say to you, I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. So there's keeping my word. If anyone keeps my word, it says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he says in verse 52, but then he says his word. I, I know him and I keep his word. All right. I hope you understand. There's no difference between the father's word and the son's word. It's all the same word. Okay. We, we may have times where we're more oriented to the Father, times where we're more oriented to the Son, but don't, don't confuse the unity of, of Trinity there. Abraham did this. Jesus did this. But the unregenerate cannot even comprehend these doctrinal issues. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, he never saw it literally. He didn't live to see the day of Christ dawning upon planet Earth. But he saw it prophetically. He saw it in hope. He saw it by faith. He was looking for a city whose, uh, with, uh, made, whose foundations were made without hands, whose architect and builder is God. So your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Think about uh, brothers and sisters, you know, that we know that, that, are, that have gone on. Gary Williams, um, Glenn Carney, Hugh Hadley. They, uh, they rejoiced to see the day. Didn't live to see it fulfilled on earth, but were taken home still in faith, waiting to see that day. And they can't even comprehend. They're, they're, they're clueless. What do, you, what do you mean you knew Abraham? How do you know Abraham? <laughs> Abraham was 2,000 years ago. You're not even 50 years old. All right, so they are lost. You know, I think about this present abiding in doctrine. As we saw earlier, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does it mean to live in the word of God? Like, well, what does it mean to live in your house? It means that's where you go. <laughs> it's where you belong. That's where your treasure is. That's where you belong. That's where you rest. That's where you sleep. That's where you, uh, that's where you fellowship with your family. That's where you, um, that's where you uh, lock your doors or shut your doors, and that's where you draw the line between those that don't have intimacy with you and those who do have intimacy with you. The ones in your home, the ones where you dwell, are the ones that you have the intimacy with. Right? I, I mean, I trust you don't just have, you know, do you take the doors off your house and, you know, anyone can come in from Charles Manson to, you know, whoever. All right. I suspect that uh, if if people decided they wanted to sleep there tonight and didn't ask you and you didn't want them to, that you might have something to say about that. All right. You might either show them the door or, uh, you know, have officers of the peace show them the door or what something else might happen. So where you dwell. We're to dwell in the word of God. That's where we belong. That's where we have fellowship. That's where we have rest. That's where we partake of our meals. That's where we fellowship with our family. That's where we go when we are separated ourselves from the outside cosmos. We go home. And it's a place of refuge. It's a place of, of, uh, of comfort. That's what the Word of God is supposed to be. And as it dwells richly within you, as it percolates and, and sparks thoughts and sparks as you uh, meditate upon it and dwell on it and consider this and consider that and let the Scriptures run through your thinking... It's a, it's a powerful process. I was listening to Charles Stanley this morning talking about that, talking about being still, being quiet, listening on the Lord, listening to what he tells you in, uh, in those moments. See, this is what should be running through our minds, thinking through the Scriptures, thinking through Psalm 119. You know, there used to be a day when um, uh, I used to think baseball. I used to think, okay, uh, you know, what are the standings? American League West, all right, let's see. And, and you automatically know. That uh, the Angels are on top. They got a two-game lead over the A's. They got a five-game lead over the over the uh, Rangers, and they're like a hundred million games ahead of the last place Seattle Mariners. And so you just know the relative standings, and you're thinking, all right, now today is a off day, or uh, today is uh, of course the All-Star break, or we have another game scheduled tomorrow, and you know, okay, tomorrow they're playing, uh, they're going to be in Cincinnati, or you know that, all right. Um, uh, so-and-so is going to be the starting pitcher. He's uh, just coming off the disabled list. This is his first start. Uh, and, and all these things are running through your mind. 
thinking, man, if we win, then we'll, we'll close that gap to, to 44 games out of first place, right? You know, you can really gain ground that way. Um, and so you're constantly thinking baseball. You're constantly thinking stats and numbers and, oh, wow, and, and Ichiro's on an eight-game hitting streak, and, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's 12 for 36 lifetime against their starting pitcher. You know how useless all that is? Who cares? <laughs> People thrive on it. They live it. They eat it. They breathe it. They drink it. They sleep it. Absolutely. They'll tell you everything there is to know. They'll tell you uh, Honus Wagner's batting average against right-handed pitching on, you know, odd days of the week. They've got it all figured out. We want to have Scripture like that. We want to have Scripture going through. And you just spark something, spark a word, spark a thought. Think, okay, um, today's word is patience. And then you spend the rest of the day with verses coming to your mind that have patience in them. And then the next day, maybe the word is righteousness. And so you think throughout the day, morning, afternoon, evening, different Bible verses that speak of righteousness. And just find different ways to dwell in the word of God. All right. Keeping the word. And this eternal focus, seeing a day that's not yet coming. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Are we rejoicing to see the day of the Lord? Are we waiting for that trumpet? Are we waiting for the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ? Are we waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are we, are we waiting to see the heavenly Jerusalem descending? Are we waiting to see the new heavens and the new earth? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a truth to that. It's not just a thoughtless saying to start a Bible class with. All right, point E. Oh, this is huge. The unregenerate revered Abraham and the prophets for their greatness. They revered them. They would deny that they worshipped them, but I think practically they did worship them. And they would say, oh, no, 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 we, we, we worship Yahweh. We, but the reverence for these men, the way they lifted them up, they put them on pedestals, they revered them for their greatness. And they never understood the humility that Abraham and the prophets exemplified. Yeah, they were great because they were humble. The unregenerate revered Abraham and the prophets. It's not in this text, but it's uh, Moses was another one of their... Uh, oh, they worshipped Moses. They idolized Moses. Jesus even used that in an earlier chapter. When he says, uh, you know, do not think that I condemn you. It is Moses that condemns you. <laughs> and boy, if, if that if they if that wasn't fighting words, they uh, he says, you know, it's Moses who condemns you, for he wrote of me. And boy, they were worshiping Moses. Moses was everything. Never understood the humility that Abraham and the prophets exemplified. The cosmos system always has a different standard for what they exalt or what they magnify, what they view as being great. You know, who's in charge of that anyway? Who assigns the great after somebody's name, right? Like Alexander the Great or Catherine the Great or whoever, the great, right? Who's in charge of those? I think it's the adversary. This is his world. He's running it presently. You know, of course, Ivan got the terrible instead of the great. And there's William got the conqueror. There's a bunch of other ones out there. Charles the bald. So, Slightly better than Charles the Fat. There was another one too, but Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. 
There's an Ivan in my son's Boy Scout troop. We call him the Ivan the rather friendly. Kind of a nice guy. But who do they revere for greatness? Conquerors? Uh, military men? Julius Caesar? Uh, who? What, what qualifies for greatness? I've yet to find an evangelical pastor uh, recorded by secular historians as the great. <laughs> Not going to happen. Who do we exalt for their greatness and why do we exalt them for their greatness? Why do we esteem or appreciate what they did? Why do we, uh, why do we have whatever, you know, jealousy, envy, other kind of thoughts towards what they did in, in the sense that, you know, ooh, well, could we do something like that kind of thing? All right. So that standard, I think, is pretty clear. Surely you're not, uh, you know, Abraham died and the prophets Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Because these are their heroes. These are their idols. Finally, the hostile crowd mocked Jesus' professed friendship with Abraham. They mock him. You're not yet 50 years old. (laughs) He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, how does he know that? Because he was there. He was his friend. He had dinner with him. In fact, uh, he had to hang out and wait a little bit while Sarah ran into the tent and tried to fix dinner real fast. And uh, they they had fellowship together. Abraham was called the friend of God. And uh, different applications here. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. The mock and the scorn... So this gives Jesus his final I am testimony. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am ego emi. Not I was, not I used to be around. Eternally, I am. There's only one being in the universe that can say I am as an absolute declaration of existence. Uncaused, uncreated, unborn, independent existence. And that's God himself. I am Yahweh, Jehovah, Ego Amy. So they pick up stones to throw at him. And then what he said was absolute utter blasphemy if it would have been anybody but him saying it. Anybody else but him saying these words should be stoned. But when Yahweh says, I am, it's the truth. And he should not be stoned, he should be worshipped. All right, so that's... The subpoints A through F out of John 8. Next week, we'll come back and use today's notes on the man born blind. It's, it's neat stuff. And um, not only do we learn about him, we learn about his parents, we learn about the religious leaders, and uh, much of the... Uh, Oh, and much of the edginess of the population of this time was entirely created by the Pharisees, where even mentioning his name was enough to rouse suspicion. And uh, confessing him as the Christ was enough to get you excommunicated. And that's what, we'll, uh, that's what we'll deal with. I'm sorry? Oh, it's happening right now. You bet. Happening right now. In any event. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. 
for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Again, we're thanking you for the answer to prayer. We've wrestled uh, all weekend long. The answer has now been made clear, and we're excited, Father. We're excited because uh, we realize that we can move forward in confidence, knowing that your grace is sufficient, knowing that your provision is, is there. And, uh, and we're proceeding forward on that basis. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.